this episode, we talk to Dr. Charles Donovan of Imperial College London about some of the most uh, important burning issues in sustainable investment. Charles is Executive Director of the Centre for uh, Climate Finance and Investment at Imperial College Business School, which has been an extremely important part of the wider conversation around all things ESG and sustainable investment. And it's an incredibly important conduit between uh, the worlds of business and, and the worlds of academia. The Centre, which has won awards from Finance for the Future for its uh, climate leadership and its work driving change through education, is known for its incredibly important work around issues like the transition to net zero, uh, the financial risks of climate change, and the global impact of clean energy on investment returns. In this episode, we talk to Charles about his role at Imperial's uh, Centre for Climate Finance and Investment. We talk about how the centre collaborates with asset managers. We talk about what asset managers can be uh, doing to avoid greenwashing and whether managers should be thinking about divestment or indeed engagement with, with their underlying uh, companies that they work with. We also talk about the role of regulation, whether we'll see COP26, which will, uh, of course, be hosted in Glasgow Lakes this year, have any meaningful impact on sustainable investment. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thanks, for, thanks, for, thanks for joining us today, Charlie. Um, I thought we could start off um, just for those, 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 uh, those of us who are listening who might not be as, as aware of what you have been doing at Imperial um, the last few years. I wondered if you could talk to us in a little bit uh, detail about what you've, been, uh, what you've been doing, what your role's been at the um, Imperial Centre for Climate Finance and Investment. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. Um, So my name is Charlie Donovan. I've been teaching at Imperial College for about eight years now. And I run a research center called the Center for Climate Finance and Investment that sits in the business school at at Imperial. And I'm also the academic director for an MSc in climate change management and finance, which again sits in the business school and fairly unique in terms of a real focus on training financial analysts, but financial analysts who are aware and, and have the right skill sets to be dealing with the changing nature of investments in a in a rapidly changing world. So yeah, but my background is is comes from the financial sector um, and in, in the energy sector. So kind of came to academia late, but hopefully better late than never. I think that's such an important point about training analysts to be able to think sort of very rigorously in terms of um, in, ter- in terms of some of these issues, because I think it's, what's interesting is when you look around the industry now, especially the people who've got, you know, a decade or so's worth of experience, a lot of these people would not have been specifically trained in, in, th- in thinking about financial analysis through this through this lens. So it's quite a quite an important element. And it's also the case that you know financial theory and what we teach students is just really poorly. M- matched for these uh, needs. And so if you think about up and down, you know, the class that, that you would have taken, the class that anybody interested in finance or economics would have taken as their kind of core corporate finance, wouldn't have addressed it all and would have treated the environment um, as really a subset and a, external to the production function that we think of in, in economics. So it's not just about, you know, having a couple of chapters on climate change and just about, you know, can I understand what a megawatt hour is relative to a, a, a barrel of oil? There are some pretty deeply fundamental issues associated with, you know, what do I do with this information? What do I do with forward-looking risks that have, I really don't have a strong historical basis to, to calculate them. I mean, all of, 
risk management is based upon extrapolating from from the past and into the future. So, you know, whereas there are some things in this program that are that are really exciting and 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 new, I still see a lot of progress that we have to make to think about you know teaching materials that are going to be relevant to specialist programs like this, but are going to be relevant to you know, every business degree on the planet, because still by and large, we're seeing students come out of university with a head full of ideas and being asked by their employers to unlearn those things and relearn in a different way. And obviously that's that's not acceptable. I think to your point just then about what do we actually do with this with this information, obviously one of the things that that you've you've been doing for the last few years is actually putting out quite a lot of really important research around a lot of these topics as well, which is obviously an open well received uh, with the wider industry, but in t- to, to that question around what what do we actually do with that information? Can you talk to us a bit about how you how you can and and, and have worked with asset managers uh, specifically to, to tackle some of these these challenges? Well, you know, I don't think many asset managers thought that they would be in a position to be having to deal with the kind of questions that are being put towards them by their clients today. And and the big question for all of those firms is. You know, how can we continue to um, tell a story on, you know, responsibility, but at the same time, starting to really deal with a much harder edged issue, which is some of these things around climate are, are looking increasingly like priced financial risks. And, and so there's there's been a bit of a, um, a bifurcation now in which there's some part of this this job, which, you know, asset managers have, many of them have done for, for, for many, many years, which is around, let's say, a sustainability theme, but begin to separate that from a, a slightly harder edge question that their portfolio managers are having to ask about, you know, do I want to be in this um, stock or not, given what I'm, I'm sort of casually understanding as some, some real headwinds to the sector, given policy, technology, wh- whatever it ha- might be. So, yeah, we've, we've tried to do some of that. I think it's, it's, it's hard, quite honestly. You know, a lot of people don't want to read academic research, and, and, and I think that there's a great reason for that. A lot of it's very dry, very way too long. It's hard to get, you know, where's the point? And some of the methodological, you know, issues that we we thrive on as as academics just are irrelevant and useless to to, to most people. So, we have have definitely tried to create a, a bit of a new mold around you know something that sits within an academic institution that speaks to practitioner questions and hopefully applies it the rigor of of academic research, but finds new ways of communicating that. And I wouldn't say that we've got it. 100% right now. It's certainly over the last year and a half, all of our attention spans have gotten even shorter than they were before. But there is a space there and, and that we're trying to fill and, and others are trying to fill too, which is, is to speak to, you know, use those capabilities of academic research, but to, but, but to, to employ them towards much more near-term and high-impact questions that need to be answered now. I think it's a really important point you, you've just made in there, which is that it's not just about doing research; it's also about communicating in a way where it, something actually gets done about it. And that's I know that's something where you've, um, you know, you've done you've, you've expended a lot of energy making sure that the the research you do gets into a, a wider conversation, especially through the media and things like that. That's obviously obviously been a crucial part of your of your of your strategy. It's been a big part of the strategy, but it's hard to know whether it's working, quite honestly, because, you know, we know that, you know, when we worked with we worked with you guys to put out stuff, we can see, you know, things about when it hits the FT, when it comes out in Bloomberg. And those are all quite, you know, good scores on the board. And you know that you're having some 
some influence. But beyond that, it's quite it's quite challenging. You know, in academic research, we have kind of a very established scoreboard around which journals you publish in and their impact scores. And so, you know, by consequence, you get it into that journal, you track how long, how much it's downloaded, and you know what the rating of that journal is and, and kind of job done. When you're releasing into the broader public and trying to influence the boardroom debate uh, as we as we are with you know scientifically driven information, it's really hard hard to know what's what's the output of that. I can't I can't go survey you know every CEO out there and find out have they did they see our stuff did they did they think about our stuff and and quite honestly you know that the answer nine times out of ten is probably not. It's very hard to permeate that that. That level, but that's the that's the ambition, and I think that we've got to challenge ourselves to you know just like a well-established scoreboard that exists for academic research, to think about what is an impact-driven research agenda look like. How do you measure that? How do you you know create a real sense that you're best of class? And that's that's something that that um, academic institutions and business schools haven't had to think about, but I think is really important in this space. I think that's a really interesting point in terms of. That, that that impact with C-suite decision makers is that you know unless you unless you've got a captive audience and you've locked them in the room and you can do some sort of surveying of them, you've got no idea whether it's actually resonated or or even landed at all. And I think also there's the challenge that, to be honest, this is a this this is a, a sort of multi-year long conversation that needs to be had as well. Um, and the impact, some of the impacts could be ten years down down the line. And how on earth do you measure the the uh, the, the impact of that. So that's, that's definitely a challenge. I wanted, to, if I can, to to, to come back to um, something you touched on right at the beginning, which is that there's a recognition amongst asset managers that there's a lot of pressure from both internal and external stakeholders to to communicate around ESG and sustainability and 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 you know um, all of these all of these great things. Um, but I think obviously that also leads to pressure sometimes to communicate where perhaps you shouldn't. And we, we end up in this sort of greenwashing territory, uh, which we hear a lot about. Um, you know, do you, do you think, um, what, what would you say, would, what would you say would be the key things for, for an asset manager to think about, to make sure that they're sort of staying, if you like, the right side of history when it comes to uh, communicating around um, you know, more, more responsible investment? That's a tough question because, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a tough industry and, and you don't have a luxury to, in a lot, a lot of times to only stick to, you know, what it is that we have, you know, where are our great proof points about what a great firm we are, what, you know, the, the truth is, is that most firms, most asset management firms today are, are trying the best they can to be part of that, as you say, on the right side of history, but without upsetting the apple cart in a way that puts them, you know, puts them in a position where that if the tide goes out, you know, they're sitting there, you know, waving the sustainability banner while everybody else is, has sought uh, refuge from, 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 from that, uh, from that process of the tide going out in which we know, you know, some people could look better than, than others. So, I think that there's a there is a process right now, and it will come even more probably more strongly in the next time we get a, a decent market downturn, which is that which of these strategies are actually built for the for the long term. You know, how much is window dressing around existing activities and just trying to put the lipstick on the pig, as as some people have referred to it, and how much of it is thoughtfully crafted. You know, thinking about the world and some serious structural trends that are that are are, are happening. Um, how to position against that, how to sort of 
develop alpha generating strategies, which which are responding to that. Um, and at the same time, you know, not everybody's got the got the opportunity to look like a brand new kind of duck. And so this is this is that that process of trying to stay close and in the pack and not raising too much attention, but knowing that to make a really big impact on, a, say, a net zero agenda is going to require doing some things differently because we don't have an economy, a global economy at the moment that's aligned for net zero. And so the idea that an asset manager can be net zero without some really fundamental changes in the composition of their portfolio is a, is a bit of fantasy. So these are the, these are, but these are the tensions. And the more that those strategies are deemed to be, you know, productive on a risk-adjusted return basis, the more that this will quite naturally um, go in that direction. So the next couple of years in that respect, I think are going to be critical. You talk about structural trends. And I think one of, one of, the, uh, one of, one of the things that we did in our recent ESG report was to sort of lay out some of the areas where we felt there was um, a sort of significant white space, if you like. And I think we felt that there was a you know, white space around uh, biodiversity, white space around um, around active ownership, white space around uh, the, the sort of pathways towards net zero, that there was room for, for asset managers who had the capability to talk meaningfully to that to, to sort of create a bit of a bit of white space for themselves. What what other structural trends um, would you would you say there are that that asset managers should be sort of alive to when it comes to to thinking about conversations to to get involved with? So for me, the, the 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 kind of the concept that underpins almost all of that is the idea of of a decline in natural capital. I think that this is the you know when you think about climate and biodiversity and a lot of very important issues, you know, it it, it, it can be frustrating for people because they think it's kind of yet another set of issues. But actually, they all a lot of those start to relate back to the same thing, which is that we've, you know, for throughout the period of industrialization that we've been in, we've really used forms of natural capital as, as usually a free input and certainly a free output with respect to, you know, the cost of, of disposal of whatever waste that process generated. And, and we're finally coming up, we didn't think it was possible, but it seems, you know, what science is telling us is we are coming up against, you know, planetary boundaries in a lot of respects, whether that's what the atmosphere can deal with, whether the oceans can deal with, what land systems can deal with. And the, this is kind of then the bigger frame that we see. Well, we are, you know, we're not in a period in which, uh, you know, anybody expects the world to run out of food or, or some of the more dire um and apocalyptic predictions that have been put forward about it, but we are we are moving up against issues uh, that are of real import to you know people's livelihoods that will change discretionary income at the at the household level, which will be felt by corporations and which you know governments will ultimately be on the hook to deal with. So th this is for me the bigger kind of meta frame that if if asset managers can think about you know where within their within their investing footprint, where sort of the boundaries are being breached, what that means exactly, you know, not just that, well, that's a terrible thing and shouldn't happen, but what are the real consequences of that? And, and then starting to deal and build, you know, investment hypotheses, you know, concurrently from that. And so, yeah, rather than seeing that we're just, you know, yet again, another sort of issue that's coming into an undefined space, 
uh, seeing how these all of these issues become manifestations of a of a bigger sort of structural issue around natural capital and 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 ultimately uh, a very a very concerning rate of decline of natural capital in in certain areas. Yeah, and I think I think that sort of takes us back to where we started this conversation, which is, you know, it's all very well talking about these issues, but what can you what can you actually do? And I think one of the interesting Sort of debates that we've seen people starting to get into, but I don't think in enough sophistication is around the balance between um, divestment um, and and engagement. And I'd, I'd, sort of, I'd love to get your thoughts on if there's a balance there. If, if asset managers should be prioritizing one or, or the other, or, or, or you know what your what your take on that conversation is. So this has been controversial, hasn't it? Because you have certain people who, you know, convinced that that divestment is an important part of the strategy, and then others who have, you know, kind of been loath to go there. And sometimes the reasoning is good. Sometimes you think the reasoning is just kind of a, a justification for the for the for the strategy that's been adopted. I think that the, what what's coming up is the as as the most impactful um, is really this this hyper engagement. And that's where you know this these there's some activist investors taking very small amounts. Of, of shares and where they're having success in AGMs where maybe other other you know activists were not, which is they seem to have the skills to get the other 49.9% of, of shareholders on board so that actually these resolutions are passing, not just being raised. And that's that's a huge change. Um, and so I think that the very first thing on engagement is that you know clearly a number of that big asset managers have come around to the idea that they were um, you know, talking one game in terms of of policy and talking a very different game when it came up to, um, you know, the voting season. And that's starting to, those contradictions are starting to unwind themselves uh, a bit. So clearly there's not, you know, there's nothing from a full divestment strategy that, that happens other than probably sectoral tilting. I mean, that's, you know, that, that that's not going, and, and consequentially probably some overvaluations in parts of the economy, which are, less carbon intensive in one you know sense of accounting but are we really going to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish by everybody plowing into that you know most definitely not so the divestment was certainly interesting as a, as part of a social movement as part of a, a, a raising the stakes but in terms of long term um progress i think this kind of hyper engagement model is is really interesting and and clearly the bigger players who don't adopt those kind of strategies, but being part of, sensibly be part of those coalitions that form on specific, for, at specific company AGMs, um, it, it really, it's encouraging that a lot more large asset managers are, are responsive to that. And, and I think we've seen over the last six, 12 months, some really sort of stunning wins that are moving people really towards thinking that, that you know, binding and binding limits are, are going to start to become the the rule of the day when it when when we talk about some of the bigger carbon emitters out there and and organizational transformations that need to happen to to enable that have to happen in a hurry because this is no longer a, a very far out issue at all. I guess I guess there's actually quite an interesting tension in the sense that that actually when you think about it, the threat of divestment gives more power to those people who are trying to engage with. For example, the fossil fossil fuels in, industries, because the you know it, it gives them more weight to that to that conversation, if that makes sense. 
I guess I guess it, it could. I mean, I guess the, the the sort of the economist's answer always back is that you know you you would have to be one hell of a shareholder for for divestment to have even a blip in in terms yeah. of impact on on share I mean, price. I mean, I mean, that's I mean the, really, I mean really, the threat across a wide the wider industry of divestment gives those who are still engaging maybe a bit. Yeah. More. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at coal. I mean, coal is very much in a position now where most of the ban- Western banks have, have stepped away entirely from coal. That has not yet fully had repercussions in the equity markets, but 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 that's next. So, you know, if we think about divestment more broadly as just exclusions and and thinking about exclusions either on a risk basis that I no longer I just don't see a story in this sector any longer. Full stop. Or that I need to limit my exposure to it in in some way, um, you know. So divestment is in some ways a, a subset of an exclusion policy that that exists across all security types, and and is a very necessary tool uh, for for people to say, you know, quite simply, we just don't want to be in this anymore. And the justification for that obviously changes, but there, it's 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 part of the toolkit, and it should be the toolkit for for anybody who's gets to a point where they see that certain types of activities are just not necessarily morally repugnant, but just no longer make sense in the, in the, 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 the idea of strategic asset allocation that they have. We've talked about the role that asset managers have. We've talked about the role that, that academia can play as well in, in terms of that, that conversation. But obviously regulate, regulators have a huge, huge role to play in this. And I'd, I'd be sort of interested to get your take on what you think some of the key uh, pieces of upcoming regulation that will, will, will have an impact on, on the way that we have to think about these issues. So for asset management, it's, 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 it's trickier, let's say. So banks obviously you know, have gone first, and that's because banks have a much more, the way that they operate, they're part and parcel you know, a state-sponsored moneymakers. And so this is, it's very natural that they would be very much more quickly um, under the thumb of regulators with respect to Climate-related risks. Now, looking uh, at stress tests around, you know, are the, are our bank balance sheets in a in appropriate shape to to weather some of those risks, particularly at some more extreme views. So that's that's all been been happening in asset management. There's obviously been a lot of uh, initiatives, particularly led by the industry. But it doesn't have the same, you know, regulatory interaction that that certainly that 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 banking does. So this is one where it's it's going to have to find its own way. And there's a lot more of an opportunity for the industry to itself articulate what should be its proper role, what should be its, you know, the standards, what will be the common approaches, particularly on how people re- report things. Um, you know, clearly in banking, that's there's a certain amount of space for that, but it's much more likely they're likely to be told than they are to be able to suggest and so you know this is these these are important moments for the asset management industry to use that you know freedom of of that it has um and and to put in place that that things that make people believe that there's going to be a high degree of integrity in the way that 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 the industry responds to these issues i think i mean i think this brings me quite nicely to my my last question which is around uh cop 26 glasgow obviously happened having later this year uh, do you think that's going to have any meaningful impact on the on the wider conversation? Do you think we'll see anything interesting come out of that? For, for I think it's bound to be a terrible disappointment, and I and it's and it's probably it probably should be in a lot of ways, at least for the finance um, community, because you know the COP is not you know twenty six versions now is really not the venue by which 
it can't be the tent for everything. And there's a lot that happens at a conference of parties um, under the UN process that needs to be done. And there's a very particular agenda and, you know, country representatives show up and they negotiate forms of text. And, and that's really what that, that whole thing is about. Clearly, it's a great thing that, that you know, COP26 has been infused with a lot of ambition around the private sector, um, clearly has a lot of, of very important folks, you know, thinking about what this means as a milestone and, and what it means to kind of follow up on the engagement that came with the finance industry in particular that came at the from the Paris Agreement. But it's just not the place in which we can have binding, you know, resolutions and which real negotiations in, in this domain, the one that we're talking about, finance and, and, and the private sector, it's not the domain in which those negotiations occur. It's not the domain in which, you know, sort of there can be a big agreements be made, but it's, it's it, the, the tough work here. It really comes down to, as you as you alluded to, you know, policymaking and regulatory bodies that are relevant to the finance industry, which you know, by and large, the COP is a is a non-event for them. So that there's a lot to be done, and hopefully, in terms of direction setting, and and confidence building, that there's that there are good outcomes. But it it will be a disappointment for anybody who's looking at some specific set of actions. Uh, for different parts of the financial sector to be announced, committed to, you know, ratified, whatever it is. It's just there There will be broad brushes, but the, the work of this actually happens in many other places. So um, a bit of disappointment should be the ex- actual, the base expectation if, if you're an observer of this particular piece of the puzzle. My base expectation is that we'll see a fair amount of PR activity around this, um, <laughs> but for everyone concerned. Um, but we'll see how that goes. I, I suspect that you will, uh, you will be absolutely right on this, but we'll, 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 we'll await further developments with interest. Um, on which note, um, I know, we, I know uh, we've, we've run out of time now, but uh, Dr. Charles Donovan, thank you very much for uh, joining us. It's been very insightful and uh, entertaining as well. So uh, hopefully, hopefully everyone will enjoy it. Um, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, take care.